Welcome everyone to Sunday Night Bible Fellowship. We so appreciate you being with us week by week as we study together in this wonderful book, this Gospel of Luke. Dr. Luke has done a marvelous job under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to record for us all of the events of the life of Christ as he saw fit to put into a book. Such a marvelous job, and we have the privilege of being able to study it. And so we invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to Luke chapter 20. We will be looking today at verses 27 through 40. Or you can look up on the screen if you're on a computer and you are following along, you'll see that we have the text, and you can follow along on that text that that'll be before you. Um, I put a title on this particular message of resurrection and marriage because that's really what this is all about, and how the two blend together, and what Jesus teaches about each one of them. So I think it's an exciting study. It gives us a lot of insight, and I'm anxious to get in and to begin looking at it. So let's take a look at the Passion Week itself. We always want to keep track now that we are in the Passion Week. We have made ourselves from Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey colt on Monday. We saw what Jesus did on Tuesday, cleanses the temple, overturns tables, and so on. And we've gotten into Wednesday, and we've gotten all the way down to the Jewish leaders' plot to kill him. And so they are coming at him, whether it's the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. And this week, a new group, the Sadducees, who are coming after him. And so we want to take a look at that. We've got, in two days, he'll be crucified. So we're getting very close to that point, even though it takes us a while to get there in Scripture. We don't want to miss any of the details. We want to see exactly what is being said about this crucial time in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 27. It says, Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection. So we need to define who the Sadducees are. We spent a considerable amount of time looking at the Pharisees. We've looked uh, a little bit at the scribes, uh, the Sanhedrin as they have come up. Not too much on the Essenes or the uh, Zealots. These were all part and parcel of Israel and particularly the religious establishment of that day. So it says here, now there came to him some of the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. Who are the Sadducees? Well, they were the wealthy. And how did they get wealthy? Because they ran the temple. And we saw that when Jesus drove the money changers and so on, the businessmen, whatever, out of the temple area. They were extortionists. They got as much money as they could. People came to Passover, bringing their animals. 
They rejected the animals. They had to buy the animals then in the temple area from these money changers and these businessmen and so on who charged them exorbitant prices for their animals to be sacrificed. And so these Sadducees became very, very wealthy. They were liberal and they kowtowed to Rome. They kept a very close relationship with Rome, and the reason was is because they had become, under Roman rule, they had become very wealthy. They just wanted to live the good life. So you will find Sadducees mixed in with chief priests, with high priests, with the Sanhedrin. So some of the chief priests were Sadducees, some were high priests. Some Sadducees were high priests. There were some Sadducees on the ruling council of the Sanhedrin. And so they scattered themselves around. So they would serve on these various or with these various groups, with the Pharisees, with the scribes, and so on and so forth. Now, what did they believe? Well, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in heaven or hell. They did not believe in life after death. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. So pretty much what they believed in was this life and this life only. Nothing beyond death. Uh, you'll see, for instance, over in Acts chapter 23, verse 8, that it says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. That tells us a lot. It tells us, okay, that they didn't believe in the resurrection, nor in angels, nor a spirit, and so on. But it tells us that they put themselves in juxtaposition, in opposition, really, to the Pharisees. And so these two groups would often get into big, huge discussions, arguments, and so on about things within Judaism at that time. These various subjects that we're talking about, angels, heaven, hell, resurrection, death, immortality of the soul, and so on. So therefore, if there is no life after death for them, then death is the end of it all. There is no reward or punishment, and there is no purpose really to history. People just are born, people live their lives, they die, there's no purpose, there's no conclusion, there is nothing. And that's the way the Sadducees live their life. But the prominent thing that they did not believe in is the fact that there is no resurrection. And as someone has said, that is why they are sad, you see. All right, so the Pentateuch was their Bible, first five books. To them, the rest of the Old Testament was simply a commentary on the first five books, on the Pentateuch, on the Torah, because that's where they went and only believed in those first five books. Now, once judgment fell upon Israel in 70 AD, a date that we keep bringing up because it's so important in Israel's past, in 70 AD, Titus and his army come in and they level Jerusalem. They wipe it out, not only in Jerusalem, 
but in towns and cities all around Judgment Falls and Jerusalem is gone. And with it go the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here, because we're talking about the Sadducees, we want to point out that the Sadducees no longer existed after 70 AD. They're gone. Israel's gone. Temple is gone. Everything is gone. Now, it's important. This is an important section because it talks about life after death. Job, in Job 14.14, said, If a man dies, will he live again? Everybody, to some extent, is faced with that question. In 2005, there was a CBS news poll that said that 87% of people polled believe in an afterlife. Where are people going after this life? They don't say what's there, what's in the afterlife. They just say that there is an afterlife. Those same people polled and asked, do you think science will ever be able to prove that there's an afterlife? Only like 8% of them said that it will be able to do it. So here you've got people, people living in the world today, who may believe in an afterlife, but they're believing in something that is not able to be proved. Interesting. Old Testament tells us that God has put eternity in man's heart. So he thinks about something beyond this life and what's going to happen and where are people going to be. Bev, my wife, the other day was looking at the newspaper and she came to the obituary section and they've got a lot of pictures there of people. And she said to me, you know, I was looking at this and I was seeing all these pictures of all these people that just in the last week or a few days have passed away. And she said, the thought just occurred to me, I wonder, I wonder where these people are. You know, and you look at each picture, you look, you see these people, men and women, and you can't help but wonder, where are they now? They were alive not too long ago. Now, where are they? And I think that's a, that's a question that plagues mankind. Is there something after this life or at death? Is it all over? Well, that's something that apparently the Sadducees weren't thinking about. They were thinking there is no afterlife. They had come to the conclusion that the resurrection was simply a myth and was not to be believed. Now, if I asked you the question, if you go to the Old Testament, where would you go to prove that there is a resurrection? Does the Old Testament teach about a resurrection or an afterlife? New Testament not so difficult. You can go to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul spends a lot of time there talking about the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection, and so on. Old Testament, you might scratch your head a little bit more. Well, let me help you out, give you some scriptures that talk about it. First of all, Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11 say, Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. 
this is just filled with references to the fact that there is a resurrection, there is an afterlife, we will be spending a place, and if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we will go into his presence, there will be fullness of joy, there will be pleasures forever. Strong passage that talks about afterlife and a resurrection. Psalm 49:15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, or the grave, for he will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He will receive me. This is talking of resurrection. Psalm 139.8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or the grave, behold, you are there. In other words, wherever I go, there you are. And I will be someplace, and I will resurrect, and I will be someplace just as you are someplace. Job 19.25-27. As for me, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my, notice, skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. There's resurrection there. Whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart fates within me. So again, After his skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Very plain declaration Job made that uh, he had all the confidence that he would be resurrected. He shall see God. And then a favorite of mine that I like to go to when I talk about resurrection in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. There's resurrection. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Again, very plain statement concerning the resurrection. Okay, verse 28. So now we know the Sadducees are, they don't believe in a resurrection. So they questioned him saying, now you got to understand, the Sadducees have got it in for Jesus. They want to see him taken out. He just came in, you know, a couple days earlier and just cleaned out the whole temple, upset all the tables, drove out the money changers. These are all people that the Sadducees were supporting, had put in place, because this is how they were making all their money. And Jesus comes in and upsets all this. So they thought, you know what, we got to get rid of this guy before we lose everything that we've got. So he believes in a resurrection. We got a question for him. We think we can trap him on this. He won't be able to answer it. He'll be made to look like a fool. So they questioned him, saying, Teacher, again, trying to, you know, play this respectful thing, even though they didn't mean it. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. So they want to trap Jesus with the absurdity of a resurrection, of an afterlife. And where do they go? They go to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 9. We'll only read verse 5 out of it, but I put 5 through 9 if you want to read the whole thing that is said there, context and so on. 
Verse 5 says, when brothers live together, okay, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Okay, what's this saying? All right. We got two brothers who live together. One is married, has no children, and one isn't. Okay? The brother that is married dies. So this is saying that the single brother then is to marry the wife and have a son to continue the family name and to propagate the family. She is not to marry a stranger. And this is God's way of preserving Israel. That when you have someone, a guy that's married to a woman, they have no children, but they're living with his brother. And as is the case, he dies, the guy that's married, the brother that's married dies. Then the other brother is to take the wife and is to impregnate her and have a son and that son then will carry on the name and the family tradition and so on of that husband that died. And so this was God's way of preserving Israel, that there would continue to be children born, new generations raised up, so on and so forth. Okay, so this is what they're referring to here. Now, verse 29 through verse 33, Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third died also. So here's the question, the million-dollar question, Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. So now you've got whether this actually took place or whether they're just proposing this as an illustration, uh, to, uh, as a question to try and figure out what are you going to say to this? I mean, there is no answer to it. You've got a real problem in eternity in the afterlife. If this woman has been married seven times, Who's she going to be married to when we get into eternity, into the afterlife? So now the principle of death with no children goes all the way through seven brothers. And the Sadducees, trying to show how ridiculous a resurrection is, poses the question, who will she be married to in the afterlife? Who is she going to be with in the afterlife? She's been married on this earth to seven of them. Who's it going to be in the afterlife? I get kind of a chuckle out of this, the way Luke puts it, and I don't know if this is the way he was saying it or whatever, but anyway, she goes through all these seven, these seven die, and it says in verse 32, finally, the woman also died. I mean, she's been racking them up, right? She's had all seven of them, and finally, she dies after she has taken out seven. I don't know. You know, if I was number 
number three or number four, I'd be kind of scratching my head thinking, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, I'm out of here. She's got a real way of putting guys in the ground, her husband's in the ground. I don't know if it was her cooking. I don't know what it was that was doing this, but she goes through seven of them. Kind of weird. I, I remember back many years ago, when there was a lot of talk about overpopulation in the world and so on, there was a kind of a saying that would go around. Someone would say, do you realize that every seven seconds there's a woman who gives birth to a baby? And I thought to myself, well, we need to find that woman and stop her, right? Well, here you've got another woman, and she is stacking up these husbands and they're dying, and now the question is, put to Jesus, is who's she going to be married to in the afterlife? So, can't you just, you know, hear the snickers and the jokes? You know, who is going to be chosen? Will it be the one with the best name? Will it be the best dressed? Will it be the wealthiest one of the seven? Who's it going to be? And they probably are sitting there just joking about the whole thing. They think, it, you know, how ridiculous all of this is. We want to show you, Jesus, that your belief in the resurrection doesn't make any sense at all. It's totally absurd. You need to abandon it. You're not the Messiah. You're teaching something that's false. And we're just exposing it right here and right now. So they think they have them. They've got them with this question. All right, verses 34 to 38. So Jesus says to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are they given in marriage, for they cannot even die any more, because they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, Jesus is saying here. All right. So in verse 34, he says, now marriage is legit. Marriage has a purpose. It has a function to it. Okay. However, age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So Jesus is saying, and you do it by the resurrection from the dead. Now I want you to notice here, verse 35, worthy means not our own worth, but based on the worthiness of Christ. That's what worthy means here. Resurrection into heaven. So in verse 36, you're like angels. Once you die here on this earth, once you're resurrected, no one die, they just go on in existence. But they also do not reproduce. Angels is an eternal state. Once we get into the afterlife, after we are resurrected, there is no marriage. There are no births. That's what 36 is saying. You're like the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So marriage, sex, reproduction, pregnancy, childbirth, is for life on the earth. It's not needed in the next life because there's no need to replace people. 
people won't die there. So we're not trying to replace them. Here they do. And so we have generation after generation, and a generation dies, and then the next generation comes along. So there is a need to reproduce. And that's all of God's design in marriage is that a husband and a wife would find each other, they would get married, and in the loving context of a marriage, they would have children, they would raise their children, and those children then would get married, and they would have children, and and so on and on it goes. That's God's design. You'll notice here at the end of verse 36 that it talks about they are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Throws me back to John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the what? The children of God or the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. So again, it's another reference here that you have to become a son of God. And you do that, again, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, taking on his righteousness, making you worthy to enter heaven someday. So Jesus says in verse 37 then, okay, let's go to the Pentateuch. You guys believe in the Pentateuch. Let's go to the Pentateuch. I want to show you some things. And so he takes him to the Pentateuch. Verse 37 says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So here's some passages where that phrase is used, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Genesis chapter 26, verse 24. Genesis 28, 13. God calls himself the God of Abraham, and Abraham is dead. But he's calling him still, he still considers him the God of Abraham, which means what? Abraham may have died, but Abraham was resurrected and is with God, and God is still the God of Abraham. In Exodus 3, 6, verse 15, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 5, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all three of those guys have already died. How could you say you're the God of them when they passed away? Well, the only way you can do that is because they have been resurrected in their spirits and so on, and they are with God right now, just waiting for their bodies to be joined to them. So, what we're saying here, it's not, I was the God of your fathers, but it's, I am the God of your fathers. There is a resurrection. These guys are with me today because I have raised them. So, the conclusion is, God is not a God of dead people. He resurrects them, and they live to him. That's verse 38. See it there? Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus is saying, will you please go back and take a look at your Pentateuch, take a look at your passages of Scripture, take a look at how it is said that God not was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is, present tense. Look at your tenses, your verb tenses. These are present tense. He currently is the God of them. God is not a God of dead people. He resurrects them and they live to him.
Now, I should say one thing here on the next slide for you because it usually comes up and people wonder about it. And that is this, that the thought of no marriage in eternity can be troubling for people. People look at it, they say, man, I've been married X number of years, or I've celebrated my golden wedding anniversary, or diamond or, or silver anniversary, or whatever it might be. And it troubles me that now I'm going to go to heaven, and boop, that's it. It's gone, no more marriage, whatever. What, what do we know about that? How do we reconcile it? How do we think about it? Well, what we do know, and I put down here three things that I believe we do know about it. What happens and how we figure this whole thing out about a husband and wife who die and go to heaven. All right, number one, relationships and their history here on earth will still be important after the resurrection in heaven. They will serve a purpose. Nowhere does it record in Scripture that all of our past is erased. I think our past is important. I think relationships are important. I think people, people that we have, person we have married, the children that we have, our relatives, friends, and all those relationships, I think those things are still important, and they, they will serve a purpose in eternity. So that history is important. We've talked about that at length before when we've talked about all kinds of things from rewards to whatever. All right, number two, heaven will not be loss or subtraction, only addition. So you have love here. In heaven, your capacity to love without sin will be far greater. Your love for your spouse, your children will be on another level. You will know them all, but you will know them more fully, just more fully. You will know them. All right, let me take a couple of scriptures here and just talk about this a little bit. Luke 16, we covered this back. We were going through Luke 16, 27 and 28. It says, and this is the rich man in Lazarus. And it's the rich man who is in hell at this point, in a compartment of hell, a waiting compartment, waiting for final condemnation at the great white throne judgment. He's there. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. All I want to say out of that is, this guy, even though he is in eternity, even though he is in the afterlife, he still recognizes that he has five brothers. They've not disappeared. They've not been erased out of his memory. He still knows that he has that. All right. An even more important passage is 1 Corinthians 13, 12, where Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Notice, now I know in part, but then. In other words, when I get to heaven, when I'm resurrected, in the afterlife, in eternity, I will know fully. Just as I also have been fully known. I think that's an important verse because it's telling us that right now we have in part, but then we have life fully. So I don't lose anything. I only gain once I get to heaven. That brings me to number three. 
all of the relationships, I believe, that are special to me on earth will still be special to me in heaven in some sense. Who my husband was, who my wife was, who my children were, my relatives, my friends. Now, I will not be married, but I will live a fuller and greater life with those I have lived with down here on this earth and with all of the saints. To have relationships here on earth is not sinful, but in heaven they will be enhanced. I may not know all what it will be like, but I do know it will not be less, but will be much more. And that's pretty much all I can say about it. We don't have a lot of talk about heaven and, and describing all those relationships and so on. But these are things that I'm inferring, particularly 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. And now I have only a part of what I will experience in heaven someday. So though there will not be designations like marriage and that type of a thing, I don't think we lose anything by those relationships or in those relationships. We only gain to it because sin will no longer be in our presence. And so everything that I do, everything that I experience, I will experience on a totally different level, on a completely higher level, on a more fully level. And I take it that all those things, all those relationships that I did have now will be enhanced to a much, much greater degree. Okay, that brings us to verses 39 and 40. Verse 39 says, Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. Pretty typical. We've seen this time and time again. Pharisees try to trap him. Now the Sadducees try to trap him. They can't do it. They understand this guy knows far more than what we do. So note that it is the scribes that respond here. The scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. It doesn't say some of the Sadducees, but it might have been the Sadducees among the scribes that answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. The scribes, they were the interpreters. They were the theologians. The Sadducees, not so much. They weren't the theologians. They weren't the interpreters. So this pretty much shut everybody up. I mean, it's just too embarrassing to keep bringing up these things and thinking we've got him cornered, and he comes out with something that just totally blows us away. Can't keep doing that. Matthew twenty-two forty-four says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone, anyone, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Sanhedrin, whoever it might be, dare from that day on to ask him another question. This is it. It's over with. Between now and the crucifixion, there will be no more questions. There will be none. Okay, let's go to some application here. Number one, the resurrection of the dead is real. Without it, believers are most to be pitied. Who said that? Paul did. It's not enough to just say, well, you know, even if there wasn't an afterlife, even if there wasn't a resurrection, you know, I just 
I still think that the Christian life is the way to live and to go. Paul says, no. You're most to be pitied because you've been deceived, you've been fooled, and you are to be pitied for the fact that you were stupid enough to believe this. So it's not someplace in between. You either believe it or you don't believe it. If you don't believe it, if you think you believe it but it's not true, then you are to be pitied. All right. Number two, don't let your ignorance of Scripture hinder you or, worse yet, lead you astray from the great truths found in it. I want to go back to a slide that I didn't cover this particular passage. It's actually slide number 13. It's the first one of the verses 34 through 38 group of verses. Because there is a passage in Matthew 22, verses 29 to 30, which is a parallel passage to what we're talking about here. And this is what Jesus says to the Sadducees in the same context. Luke doesn't record it, but Matthew doesn't. I think it's an important one. It says, But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but like the angels in heaven. That's a powerful statement that Jesus makes. Because you see, they're making fun, they're making a joke out of the doctrine of the resurrection. Listen, doctrine is important. Theology is important. All of that has to do with the study of God and his word. And those are all important. When you go to seminary, you spend quarter after quarter or semester after semester taking a look at things such as Christology, the doctrine of Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, eschatology, the doctrine of last things, theology proper, which is the study of the doctrine of God, uh, bibliology, the study of the Bible, harmardiology, which is the study of sin, angelology, which includes demonology and satanology, which is the study of angels, both elect angels and fallen angels. And so all of these various areas of theology are all important. If you are ignorant of those things, it is, it is a tragedy because not only can you not apply those things correctly to your life, but in actuality, they may lead you astray. And Jesus is saying to these Sadducees, you're not understanding the scriptures, nor are you understanding the power of God. The Sadducees were ignorant. It reminds me of a couple other passages in scripture. If you go back to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, God says there, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. In other words, they're ignorant. They're acting in ignorance. When you come to the New Testament, you take a look at 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, Paul says, he starts out verse 12, and he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And they were ignorant. They were ignorant of the purpose for spiritual gifts, chapter 12. They were ignorant of how to use their gifts, chapter 13. And they were ignorant specifically of the purpose of speaking in tongues. So he has to take them all the way through nearly three chapters. He gets down to chapter 14, verses 20 through 22, and he goes back into the Old Testament there to Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, and he tells them 
This is how you understand what the purpose for the gift of speaking in tongues is. And it's found in the Old Testament, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. But they were ignorant, and because of their ignorance, they were totally led astray. They had totally been swept off their feet by emotion, by the mystery religions, by all the things of that day. And they were totally misusing the gift that God had given of speaking in tongues. And they were using it instead, just like it was being the things that were being done in the mystery religions. Ignorance is a terrible thing. Ignorance can wipe out your life. It can wipe out your Christian life. People that are not Christians can find themselves for years having fallen into a pit of ignorance and not understanding things, just like the Sadducees. They did not understand about the resurrection. They did not understand the implications of the resurrection. They didn't understand the power of God, that God can raise people from the dead that all the absurdities and the things that you might think about, he's got that all figured out. That's all under his power. And so it really is important for, for us to give ourselves to the study of God's word. So what we're saying here in application, don't let your ignorance of scripture hinder you, or worse yet, lead you astray from the great truths found in scripture because it can have devastating results. All right. Lastly, number three, we have to ask the question when we're talking about the resurrection. I ask this to everyone that's listening today. Where will you be after you die? And don't tell me you've never thought about that. People think about it nearly on a daily basis. What's going to happen to me after I die? Now, if you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what's going to happen to you. You have the security of knowing that you have eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have eternal life. These things I have written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 11 through 15. So we can know that we have eternal life. We can know that we're going to be resurrected, that we are going to step into heaven after we die. That's ours. But boy, there are a lot of people who don't know. There are a lot of people who it worries them that when they take their last breath, a second after that, they're going to know what happened. They're going to know where they are, and they're going to know where they're headed, either to the great white throne judgment and God bringing down the gavel, and judgment will fall, condemnation will fall, and they will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Scripture is very clear about that. Or they know that they have entered into eternal life because they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And I trust for everybody listening today from around the world, wherever you are, whatever country you're in, doesn't matter. Today, you can know that you have eternal life, that when you're resurrected, you're resurrected to spend eternity with the God of the universe and with all the others who have put their faith and trust in Christ as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful today for this time that we've had looking at this passage. Great passage. 
of Scripture uh, that we have been privileged to study here today. A sobering passage, a passage that talks about the afterlife, which obviously people think about pretty regularly and where they're going to spend eternity. And so uh, we're thankful that your son made it very, very clear, laid it right out, corrected some false thinking on the part of the Sadducees. And we're thankful we have that record today that we can study and we can understand what's involved in coming to faith in Christ and the fact that once I do that, when I die, I will be resurrected and I will spend eternity with you. So, boy, we are so grateful and so thankful for all the provisions you've made for us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. We're excited to spend eternity with you. We're excited to spend it with loved ones, with uh, relatives, with friends. Be a tremendous time. All the things that we go through down here on this earth, they'll all be distant, but we'll have memory of it, of the struggles and the trials and what it was like living here. And we'll be free from all of that and we'll be free from all sin so that we can serve you, so that we can love one another in a way that we've never experienced here on this earth. So we're thankful for all that you've prepared for us. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man, all that you've prepared for us. So we're thankful for that. And uh, we pray for your blessing upon us now. You would use us to further glorify yourself as we continue to live for you. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. And for his sake alone, amen. Amen.